dark matters. So uh, there is a dark side to the universe. I'll be telling you a little bit about that. But it's sort of interesting that um, the dark stuff in general is of great appeal to in many, many areas. So here's a, um, a series of paintings um, by the US artist um, Alan McCollum, which um, are entirely black. But you see, what does vary is that the frame and um, the shape. <laughs> so, so, you know, in, in a sense, what I'm going to tell you is a, a scientific analog of this. Um, uh, the dark stuff of the universe comes in different forms, uh, different varieties, but it's inevitably dark and um, essentially invisible. And we have to try very hard to think of clever ways to to detect it, to convince ourselves that indeed it really exists. So here in a nutshell is what we see in uh, the expanding universe. Um, so this is um, uh, the entire history of the universe actually from the very mysterious beginning that we don't see but we infer, but when we here through um, telescopes, we do see this faint glow from the beginning, um, um, which was a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, actually. But after that, there was a phase when there was nothing visible so far. That we call that the Dark Ages. And then, as time goes on, stars form. And uh, this is what we're beginning to map out with our, with our telescopes, certainly the nearer, the nearer part to us. We're over here, basically, looking back in time. Um, and the universe is, um, is full of galaxies, and it's all taken some nearly 14 billion years since the Big Bang. That's our current view. And um, right at the very end, the expansion is beginning to speed up a little bit, to accelerate. And um, I'll come to that in a minute. Um, that's another form of dark stuff so that uh, we are worrying a lot about in cosmology. So this is what we don't see. So we, we see the atoms, we're made of atoms, uh, but there's all this stuff which we call dark matter. It's thought to be cold dark matter. I'll explain that in a moment too. Um, but there's even more dark stuff in the form of dark energy which fills the universe and is causing that, that recent acceleration that um, you noticed in, in that last uh, glimpse, that last timeline of the universe. We believe it's responsible. So, you know, 96% of the universe is dark. That's a lot. And, um, you know, clearly, unless we can get to grips with this and have a better understanding of what it is, we're not getting very far in our comprehension of the universe and, um, you know, indeed where we came from, which is our ultimate goal here to try to figure that out. So let me begin with the dominant component, which we call dark energy. And um, this is responsible for this recent sudden pickup in speed of the, of the expansion, this acceleration of the universe. We all know it's the expanding universe, but why is it expand? it's expanding faster and faster as in the recent past, as we determine by looking at distant galaxies. So the story goes back to um, Georges Lemaitre, who uh, was um, 
um, an ordained priest, but at around the time he first did his PhD, just before when he was about becoming ordained, he, he was a cosmologist, and he was very interested in, in Einstein's theory of general relativity, which had really just been around for a few years, and he was interested in the universe. And um, he uh, understood something that Einstein did not understand, namely that the universe um, could quite plausibly be expanding. And so in his sketchbook in 1927, where he, like many you know, good scientists, he wrote down all, all his ideas, he sketched out um, his ideas for the solutions of Einstein's equations for the expanding universe, and so these are different um, theories, uh, different models of the expanding universe, some of which get larger and larger, then come back, and there's a big crunch. Okay, that was one option. Another option was just expanding forever and ever and ever, just gradually, gradually slowing down, but never really stopping. And a final one, a third class, was a universe which suddenly begins accelerating, was the very end. And so Lemaitre had these ideas, and what was also quite remarkable was he went to um, talk to the astronomers in California, Pasadena, and he um, got hold of the data, which uh, was known at that time to a number of, to a number of them, on, on the galaxies and their galaxy motions, for essentially from the Doppler shift of light. And so he looked at the comparison. Of course, the data was very, very sparse in those days, um, could he actually see the acceleration? The answer was no, no, he couldn't. Um, but before I show you what Lemaitre found, let's just um, go back to um, where all this came from, which was Einstein's new theory of gravity. And so Einstein um, had the brilliant idea that um, one can understand gravity much better as being due to um, space not being Euclidean, as we're, you know, three angles of a triangle up to 180 degrees, we're taught in, in school. But in fact, because of the presence of gravity is slightly curved. Um, and, and so the three angles would, up, would add up to a bit less because space is being curved. And that's the equivalent of having mass. And so here is sort of a, a cartoon of, of what would happen around a, an object, a compact object. It could be a black hole, it could be a star even. It's a small effect for a star. Um, so space is somehow, uh, and by measuring this property of space, you can basically um, uh, determine the properties of matter that you can't see. I mean, some matter you can see as stars, but if there was dark matter, this is, this is brilliant because it would affect space, and you can measure by sending, by studying light rays that go through space that don't go quite in straight lines, you can infer stuff about dark matter. So that was the idea. And... Um, so Einstein then had, had this um, idea that the curvature of space was basically sourced by mass. And, you know, mass and energy are similar and also momentum. Um, and he wrote all this down in, a, in an equation. Now, I'm, I'm not going to... I just want to show you this schematically because um, the, the idea behind this is very simple, actually. So, you know, complicated algebra. In fact, this, this was... Introducing the tensor calculus, it is said, is what was the point in cosmology which the theologians mostly left the field and the scientists came in, you know, in the, in the 1920s. But um, so you have, you know, the curvature and you have all this stuff which is the matter. And um, Einstein was very worried because he realised 
um, because of gravity, the universe would collapse, and that would be a nasty thing. So we introduced a, a new form of, um, of repulsion, of anti-gravity, in this thing with a Greek letter lambda in front. And we call that the cosmic constant. So um, it was unpleasant, it was artificial. He did not know about the expanding universe, and if he had known about that, he would not have needed to have done this. Um, so Lemaitre um, came along, um, and he said, well, um, you know, um, we can, you know, this was what Einstein wanted. He wanted, he wanted basically gravity and something to counter gravity. Um, but if the universe, as in the data that Lemaitre was able to get his hands on, that Einstein was unaware of at the time, um, this would give you something new. And so, um, and, and Lemaitre realized also that um, this anti-gravity, this lambda thing that Einstein had invented, he, he was the first person to give a physical interpretation to it. It was, a, it was a form of energy, but because it's a form of energy with a minus sign in front, it acts like anti-gravity. It can accelerate the universe. And so in this classic paper in 1933, um, uh, Lemaitre talked about the energy of nothing, basically the vacuum, um, which we have a modern understanding in, in, in terms of quantum theory now, a little better. And this acts like um, the opposite of gravity. It, it can push things apart. So that was Lemaitre's idea. And of course, here was his first attempt, the first attempt, to look at the data. So at that time, they just measured, you know, each point is, a, is the redshift of a galaxy, the velocity of a galaxy. And Lemaitre's idea was that the further away the galaxy in his models, the further they should be speeding up. And if he was right about acceleration, they should be speeding up even more the further you went. They should not be a straight line, but the line should sort of should, should curve upwards eventually. You, know, you couldn't see that. The data was ridiculously noisy. Um, but nevertheless, it did support the idea of the expanding universe. The further away, the faster things were moving, which would mean that you did not need necessarily to have this weird force which gave you acceleration, this lambda thing that Einstein had, 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 had conjectured. There was no need for it anymore. Okay, so this was in 1927. So Lemaitre was a very modest person and he actually published his results um, in French in an obscure journal in Belgium and it was not widely known. And so two years later, Edwin Hubble, American astronomer, also rediscover rediscovered, unaware of Lemaitre's work completely, um, that there was indeed a relation between the speed of a galaxy and his distance from us. And this was the origin of the modern theory of the expanding universe. And this is called Hubble's law, not Lemaitre's law, uh, but for reasons that are quite common in physics, actually. The original discoverer sometimes does get forgotten. But it was a year or two later when Lemaitre's ideas were recognized, translated into English, etc., that um, uh, it, it has become known, much more widely known, about Lemaitre's contribution. Um, so here's the modern data, just to, just to show you. We flash forward now um, to um, basically um, 70 years forward in time, 60, 70 years forward in time. And you can see that if I go to this, um, this straight line would be the expanding universe with no acceleration. And all the data far away um, when the universe is half its present age is, is going a little bit too fast, which means that it, there's acceleration. And so, indeed, Lemaitre could not detect this acceleration. He hypothesized, he hypothesized about it, but it really seems to be there. 
Um, the universe has this weird type of pressure which comes from the properties of nothing, basically, in, in the modern quantum theory that gives you an effective pressure because you can't exactly identify where a particle is. This uncertainty gives you an effective pressure. And that is our conjecture about the cause of the, of the acceleration of the universe. Okay. Um, so this turns out to be a headache for... Um, the cosmologists today. Um, let me first tell you how they made this breakthrough in going beyond the early data that just showed expansion. They studied um, the most, the brightest objects in the universe, exploding stars, supernovae, um, which are thought to be essentially perfect bombs, certain types of them. And so if you can measure them nearby, you can calibrate, you can use them as your yardstick, basically. And then you, when you look far away, um, you find in this distant galaxy that here is such a, such a supernova. Um, you can't resolve it like this. This is a, a, very, a nearby one in our Milky Way. This is far away. But it's got the same intrinsic brightness. Therefore, you can infer uh, its distance. And you find, because you can also measure the distance of the galaxy from its redshift, that this simply is faint. It's too faint. Therefore, the galaxy must be further away than you think it is. Therefore, the universe is accelerating. So this is the modern way. Uh, data, unaccessible in the 1920s, actually just in the night, it took, it took half a century to develop this sort of precision in, in getting data, and, um, or more, and um, so there we have it. So this has led to what has been called the biggest problem in physics, let alone cosmology, so I want you to ignore the units on this picture, but there's a number there, which is the density of the universe um, that's required to give you this extra push. Okay? We call this the, the, the vacuum density, the interpretive quantum, quantum effects that Lemaitre actually conjectured, should, should, had to be there. Um, so that's what we measure. Now we can go back to our theories of the beginning of the universe, and we try to... Um, predict what they should be. And the best prediction is this. So all I want you to look at is the numbers. Forget the units. Um, but you can see there are many, many factors of 10. There's about 120 factors of 10 difference between what we see and what we would have expected from our theory of the our best theories of the beginning of the universe. So this is a big headache, um, and it's been called the greatest problem in physics. Okay, so, um, and I think... It's fair to say that we don't have a solution today to this problem. I mean, there are conjectures out there, but it's something that's challenging um, our latest studies of the universe, galaxy surveys, to try to find some clues as to what, as to what this, um, um, this, this vacuum energy, this density of nothing, almost nothing, might, might be, which is causing this acceleration. Okay, I'm not going to tell you any more about the speculation behind this, but what I will tell you is one simple prediction of the acceleration of the universe. So here's a cartoon that tells you, um, shows you, you know, there are actually billions of galaxies. It's how far out we can see with the, with the very biggest telescopes, 50 billion light years. And then as the universe expands, you know, you expect to see more and more galaxies, right? That would have been the old prediction before we discovered the acceleration. But because the universe expansion is accelerating, all these galaxies are moving out of our horizon. They're going faster and faster. 
okay? And in a certain amount of time, it's a bit sad, this is a prediction, it's a long time away, it's 140 billion years, the sun will have long died, but nevertheless, it's a prediction, will be the only galaxy left. Our Milky Way will be the only one that we can see. We'll know, when we look with our telescope, we'll see nothing, no other galaxy. They'll all have gone, those billions of galaxies will have accelerated over a field of view. So that is um, a, a fundamental prediction about the, um, if the universe keeps on accelerating, that's what we can expect. Of course, the acceleration might stop for unknown reasons, but this is our current best view of the very, very distant future. We really will be alone in the universe. Okay. Okay, um, so let's now turn back to the artists. So um, uh, I want to now switch to dark matter. So dark matter again has, um, you know, it's a fascinating subject. It's inspired our creative imaginations. I'll, I'll show you two, two visions of dark matter. This comes from um, uh, uh, sculpture, uh, sculptures basically by Cornelia Parker, a uh, view of cold dark matter. And here's a, another one uh, that... Um, uh, you know, it's in a different type of uh, universe, but equally, it's, it's a, another view of what dark matter might be. Okay, so um, how do we find matter that's dark, right? Um, so the idea is um, the dark matter, it exerts gravity, right? Even though we can't see it, we, we, um, we have found that it's there. We've discovered its presence by its effect on the stars that we see. So stars um, in this example, so they, they orbit around this galaxy, a sort of galaxy a bit like the Milky Way, okay? And, and um, if, the, if the galaxy is full of dark matter, this is going to have some effect on the stellar speeds. Um, and you can say, well, maybe it's due to very faint stars or whatever that, that we you know, just can't quite see. But then we've, we've looked very hard for these faint stars. And if you can eliminate that option then um, it must be something truly dark that's doing this. So um, it's a little bit like, you know, eliminating all the, all the possible uh, explanations and coming to perhaps circumstantial evidence that something must be happening. Okay, so the person who pioneered this um, way ahead of his time, this was in 1933, it's Fritz Vicky, um, uh, um, and who lived mostly in California, originally... Um, um, a Swiss astronomer, and he talked about dark matter. He, his native language was German, so das dunkle materia. And um, his idea was that let's study um, a, a cluster of galaxies, hundreds of galaxies. The most famous one was the Coma cluster at that time, Th actually thousands of galaxies. And he, again, thanks to the redshift uh, with telescopes, they were, was able, with his colleagues, to measure the speeds at which these galaxies were, were moving. Now, mostly um, they were just buzzing around inside this giant cloud, the cluster of galaxies. And so you had their random motions. Of course, the whole thing was moving away with the expanding universe. It was the random motions that intrigued him. And he realised that... Um, these galaxies should just be flying apart. You know, it was just like a beehive or something. They should be dispersing. The cluster shouldn't be there unless it was full of dark matter. And he figured out how much there had to be and, um, in 1933. And he said that um, there must be 400 times um, more dark matter than light matter if the light, typical light matter is like a star, like the sun or something. So that was his number. And so the amazing thing is, is the, the, this rather crude 
inference from the data in 1933 has lasted, you know, 90 years or thereabouts, and it's currently as good a value as we have, but we do have greatly improved observations. Okay, before I show you those about clusters, let's now first think about the Milky Way and galaxies like our galaxies. So that our, one of our nearest neighbours, um, the nearest galaxy like us to us, is the Andromeda galaxy. You can just see it as a fuzzy patch in the sky with a naked eye and on a very dark side, a constellation of Perseus. Um, and you can measure the speed of the stars, um, and they mostly are, are rotating and um, going around in a, in a, in a disk. And um, so here you have the, the, the central part of the galaxy where all the stars are, and you measure the speeds of these stars, and you go, as you go out, there are still some stars out here all the way out, and then even when you run out of stars, there are gas clouds, and you can measure those gas clouds, and they're, they're with no stars at all, and you notice their speeds, basically, the, these yellow dots indicate the speeds, the speeds just stay the same. So if all the mass was where the light's concentrated, the speeds have to go down because gravity's getting weaker as you go further out. But it's not, okay? So something strange is happening. So again, this is what you expect, this is what you see, and there was a huge discrepancy. And these two astronomers, um, Vera Rubin, who measured this um, uh, in the optical um, from Matt Wilson and Morton Roberts, who used radio techniques to look at the gas clouds, but concluded that there had to be um, a lot of dark matter, at least 10 times as much dark matter as you, as you uh, uh, maybe 100 times as much as you see in the stars. Okay, so the next step then, we fast forward, that was in the 1950s. Let's fast forward half a century to recent studies. And finally, we can now directly image the dark matter by using Einstein's idea that light paths are curved, space is curved by the effects of gravity. So light does no longer travels in straight lines um, because of the effect of a mass. Um, and if there's more mass than you can see, then the light will curve even more in its path, and so you can infer what's going on. So here we have the, the, the concept, okay, so here's a, here, here's a galaxy full of stars and, and lots of dark matter maybe, and the light from a distant galaxy behind this one, way behind this one, will be going in this direction, but its trajectory gets curved, okay, and comes to our telescope. And so what you can then imagine you will see, this image will then, because the, if you try to rotate this, you know, in, in and out of the screen, you'll see a circle, Right? You'll see a circle of light. That'll be the lensed image of a distant galaxy. And the broader that circle, the stronger the light's curving, the more dark matter there must be. So that's the idea. And amazingly, this is what you see. Okay? When you, with modern techniques, you take beautiful images with the space, Hubble Space Telescope, for example. And um, so I'm showing you the best example. It's been called the golden lens. But the others are, because if you're not quite aligned, you don't see quite the same symmetry as this. But anyway, you see this incredible... Just one distant galaxy way behind this one, its light is being turned into this. So, and the only understanding of this is that this galaxy must have a lot of dark matter, much as the amount that we deduced from studying the Andromeda galaxy or our own Milky Way from the motions of the stars. So all that hangs together. And so this is one galaxy. Um, this is perhaps... Um, you know, tens of thousands of light years across, 30,000 light years. But if we now move on to Zwicky and his cluster of galaxies, we see exactly the same thing 
for now over a million light years, we're studying an entire cluster. So each one of these is like this galaxy. And we're looking at a way distant galaxy behind it. And again, its light is being turned into this beautiful you know, ox. And it's not quite regular because you know, there are other things that get in the way. You're not quite in the, in the central line of sight. But anyway, it, it's, this is we're mapping out the dark matter. By studying the distortions of the background galaxies, we actually produce maps of dark matter. And the conclusion is that the dark matter is everywhere. Okay, so there it is, much more than in the stars. Um, let's ask another question. So I like this question because this is an example I'm going to show you where the power of computers has made a huge difference in astronomy. Um, so naively, you say uh, the galaxy is full of dark matter. Let's, we call this a halo of dark matter. So here, here's, you know, this is Andromeda, actually. I've stuck in the middle. And there's some big, giant shell of dark matter around it. But in fact, that's not the case. So when you do computer simulations of dark matter, you find that the dark matter clumps. It forms many, many clumps. I mean, it's the same amount of dark matter spread overall, but it's now in many, many clumps. And this is the, the galaxy, which you see in the stars. Of course, it looks nothing like the dark matter, the beautiful spiral arms. Each of these are, are thousands of bright stars, okay? The center of the galaxy, the central region with many, many stars in. And, but when you look in the dark matter, all this complexity of the stars isn't there. You're just seeing the underlying dark stuff within which the stars condensed from clouds or whatever. But that dark stuff is simply not a big uniform sphere. It's broken up into many, many clumps. And that's very important because <clears throat> it's breaking up into clumps. It's the whole way that, you know, um, the, the gas forms in clumps, those clumps and, and the gas then make the stars, and it's the way structure evolves. So with one big uniform sphere, you probably would have had a very hard time making a galaxy but because we say that the dark matter is in some sense unstable to making these clumps. That helps a lot. To, to generate the universe we see. Okay, um, so the fact that the dark matter can form these clumps on small ones, big ones, um, this is a property that we call, we can think in terms of temperature, um, that just means the random motions of particles for the dark matter, probably because it's some sort of particle that we haven't discovered yet, um, and, and we say that it's cold. Okay, okay so if it were hot or warm, it just wouldn't clump up because the, the random motions would stop it. But if it's cold enough, it would clump. <clears throat> and that, we think, is how galaxies are formed. <clears throat> so how do we test this? Well, here's a beautiful way this is being, has been tested in simulations, again, but now not of one galaxy, but of a vast chunk of the universe. And so here you appeal to the power of statistics. You do a survey of a million galaxies. You measure their redshifts, and you look at their distribution in space. And if the dark matter is cold, you should have lots of clustering, clumpiness of these galaxies on the larger scales. It's hard to see the small ones, but the bigger ones you can trace out by studying where the galaxies are. <clears throat> and, um, and so in the blue, you see data. I won't even explain where this comes from, but these are million galaxy surveys by astronomers. Okay, this, uh, and basically they're looking further away into the universe using redshift of fill out this big cone of structure in the universe, which is projected in this plane. And, but in the red, you see the, from the computer the simulations with the single assumption that the dark matter is able to clump, that it's cold, and that it doesn't interact with the ordinary matter. And then you say, well, we're over a clump of 
clump of dark matter, I call that a galaxy, I assign it a certain amount of light, and lo and behold, I make a picture. And so you basically you've demonstrated that this hypothesis is a beautiful explanation of, of structure, and now we're going out to basically uh, 100 million, several hundred million light years. So the dark matter is not just in our Milky Way. It's not just um, in clusters of galaxies, millions of light years across. It's spread throughout the universe over hundreds of millions of light years. So um, it's a, and just to give you some example, we've advanced a lot in computing power. So when this, with this, these maps were first made, we could compute 100 million particles in the in the computer as points and let them cluster and see what happens. Nowadays, the biggest computers can do a trillion particles. It's an amazing increase in, in complexity one can do, but the pictures, are, the results are the same. And so, which is, which is, uh, but we can start to look for tiny deviations which you haven't found yet. Okay, so let me try to summarize. The dark matter consists of um, something very weakly interacting because it's way out from where, where the stars are. Um, it's, it's not making any light. Uh, therefore, we say it's made of some weakly interacting particles. Unlike the particles that make us or make stars, they, they, they do lead to nuclear reactions, they lead to light, they lead to chemical bonds or chemistry, all this stuff. The dark matter is invisible that way, therefore it must be weakly interacting. And we think it's probably a fundamental particle. Um, that's the simplest hypothesis from the very early universe. But we haven't found it yet. Okay, so the many attempts are being made now to look for this. And, and it's interesting that, that there are many, many hypotheses out there as to what these particles might be. And I would say a, a guiding line in theoretical physics is something like this, that everything that's not forbidden by the laws of physics is compulsory. It should exist somewhere. Okay? And although most of this may have decayed, may have vanished a long time ago at the beginning of the universe, some relic of that could be the dark matter. So, so theorists who look who specify what the experimentalists might want to look for are full of ideas. Some seem far-fetched, others less so, uh, but it's all relative and, and, and it's all based on the premise that there must be dark matter, we haven't found it yet, what could it be? Okay, so here is one direction this reasoning takes us in. So, you know, we can make new particles at extreme energies. We do that when we smash them together in big particle colliders. The early universe was our ideal particle collider. The energies achievable naturally at the beginning of time were incredibly high. So all particles that could have existed would have existed at the beginning of the universe. Fortunately, most of them decay in an instant and are no longer here. But if there's one survivor from that bizarre time of extreme energy, um, that could be our best candidate for the dark matter. Even though we don't make them now in stars, etc., it's, it's a leftover relic from the beginning of the universe. So that, that's that's the, one of the major ideas behind the search for dark matter. It's a relic from the beginning. Um, but unfortunately, there are many possibilities that this relic could be. It could be a heavy particle. It could be a lighter particle. And we try to think of um, uh, ways that may guide our experimental colleagues to look for these things. Okay. And um, as the universe cooled down, these particles, which would have been there eventually, as the heat died away, they would have, be, they would have been, they could be the dark matter, if, they, if they're stable. We have to assume they're stable. Okay, um, so the first way we try to test this hypothesis is to go to the particle colliders and try to recreate the Big Bang, right? To smash particles together at such high energy, 
that you can reproduce these initial conditions or something like it and try to make particles which might be long-lived enough to be candidates for the dark matter particle. And so this, in principle, is something you can do at this place. This is the Large Hadron Collider, uh, currently a largest particle smashing machine. Um, this is 27 kilometers uh, uh, across, and there's a uh, tunnel underneath here in which you send particles in two different directions. They, they collide into each other at very high energy. Um, and uh, you, you look for m events when they collide together that carry out, you know, you see energy being you know, energetic things coming out, but we know energy is conserved, right? Fundamental, um, momentum's conserved. But if you see missing events with missing energy, then that missing stuff could be a dark matter part that's being produced. That, that's the idea. And so we've built, you know, my colleagues have built these incredible machines to um, look for the results of these collisions, um, to detect tiny flashes of light um, that could have some missing component that would then lead you in the direction of dark matter. And the sad thing is they've found so far no evidence for dark matter. Okay, so, so far that doesn't mean to say that it's not there. That doesn't mean to say that, that we should stop looking. In fact, there are serious attempts now to build accelerators, particle colliders, that are 10 times the energy of the one I showed you in CERN. Um, which means um, that costs something like, um, I think, 8 billion euros. And if you want something 10 times bigger, you have at least 10 times the cost. Many more magnets, modern technology. It's something that would take you many years to build. Um, but these schemes are on the drawing board to expand our search for dark matter just because we may not have quite got close enough to the early universe conditions we need to make it. So um, here's another approach to dark matter. So we know how much dark matter there is, we measure it, therefore we know how many particles there are out there that might be this dark matter. And so these particles, you know, they interact with us, they pass through us. Um, and it's a little bit like Goldilocks, actually. If they interact too strongly with each other, then there are none left today, or very few left. If they interact too weakly with each other, there are too many left. So they've got to be just right, okay, in their interaction strength. So first we know how many there are, and secondly, we can infer, if they're the dark matter, their, their strength. And we have a wonderful name for them. We call them WIMPs for weakly interacting massive particles. Okay? It's always great to have a name for something. So we're searching for WIMPs out there. And we're searching now for the ones that are passing through us. Okay? So forget the accelerators. Let's put that aside. It's another experiment. But now the ones that are bombarding us. And there are many. Okay? Every second going through you, okay? through us, if we're right, that these are fundamental particles. The trouble is they interact so weakly. Okay? You need a huge detector mass. It's no good having a human being. Our mass is far too little. And besides which, you know, the only thing they might occasionally do is give you a random mutation or something. And that won't do you any good either. But what you want to do is go deep underground, have a huge mass of material and look for tiny light flashes from these interactions. Okay, and, and we can predict roughly how many there should be. Okay, so it's an industry. It's going on all over the globe. There are many experiments. They have to go deep underground, deep under kilometer equivalents of rock, because the cosmic rays, the natural energetic particles that bombard the Earth's atmosphere will also give you light flashes in these detectors, and you want to avoid them. So but you want to have a huge rock mass to protect you. 
Okay, so um, here um, you can see that um, the experiments are spread around. We, we have our own one in, in the UK, in, in the Bowlby mine, um, and there are um, several in the US. Mostly these are mines, um, or um, in some cases where you have mountains, you have tunnels, freeway tunnels that go underneath, you can then cave out experimental labs deep under the mountain. Okay? And, and the current record holder is the one in China at Yang Yang, which is um, some two and a half kilometers below the surface. Okay? Um, Bulby is about one kilometer deep in the north of England. So um, here is the current state of the art. Grand Sasso in the Apennine Mountains in um, northern Italy. Um, there's a, a, a highway that goes through the base of that and they've carved out a, an experimental lab. Um, uh, uh, Elena Avrili is the principal investigator of the experiment and she's con and her, and her colleagues have contracted a tank with one ton of liquid xenon. Okay, So why on earth would you go for liquid xenon? Well, noble gases, noble elements are very clean. All the other things that you might think of for looking for these tiny directions probably have some natural radioactivity. They're, they're, they're impure for whatever reason. But if you deal with a noble gas, that's, that's probably your best bet. Um, and meanwhile in China, and, and uh, perhaps twice as much rock, um, also similar experiments are being done. I think they're currently up to about half a ton of liquid xenon, but they're rapidly improving. And again, freeway tunnel um, through the mountain underground lab that does that. Okay, so um, it turns out that they've found nothing so far. A ton is not good enough, okay? So what do, you, what do you do? Well, it's simple. You go to 100 tons, right? The bigger, the better, because the more material you have, the greater your chances are of seeing this very, very rare event. Although there are lots of these particles passing through you, only very seldom does one give you this flash of light you want. Okay, so the more detector mass, the better, okay? Um, and as I said, you do it because the noble gases are very clean. Um, so we, we can go to 100, 100 tonnes of liquid xenon, massive detector, okay, and uh, deep in a mine, okay. Costs a lot, but these are being planned now, okay. The trouble is there's no guarantee we're going to find anything. It's a bit worrying, um, and you may ask why stop at 100 tonnes. Well, it turns out that there is a natural wall you come to because there are tiny particles called neutrinos that um, come from the sun and from the atmosphere of the earth, that, are, that will pass through anything, and these will get into your detector, and these will give you reactions that you can't possibly avoid and, and give you a background of light that will confuse any signal if you, if you, if you, if you look too sensitively. So there's a natural limit to how, to how faint you can go. So we're not there yet. It's another 10 years to get to our 100-ton goal, um, but that search is another very active thing that's going on. Okay, um, so there's another approach, which is um, equally exciting, but it's totally different. Um, th th this is looking for another indication of these dark matter particles. So when, imagine our Milky Way or any galaxy full of dark matter, where the dark particles occasionally interact with each other, they collide off each other. And the theory that says they were made in the very early universe also says that they should you know, and destroy themselves because most of them have, have long gone. That is, they're created by extreme heat and they annihilate when they hit each other. Now, this happened frequently a long time ago when conditions were very hot, okay, and, but today it still must happen with some probability. 
So it's a very rare event, but if you take a big enough cloud of dark matter, then every now and then, two particles will self-interact and produce, because they're massive, a flash of gamma rays. So we think that gamma rays are a great way to look in a dark place in the universe for a glow from dark matter. So what are the natural targets? Well, we go to the darkest galaxies we know about. So the Milky Way is, the centre of it is full of dark matter, but there's lots of stars there, so it may not be the ideal place. But here are the darkest galaxies we know about, and you can see this is a one that's pretty dark, just a you know, pile of stars, and here you can barely see the stars. This one is the faintest one known. So this is an example of an ultra-faint galaxy, and remember I said there were a few hundred times more dark matter than stars in in the Milky Way or whatever, in terms of the mass equivalents. Here it's thousands of times more dark matter than the equivalent mass in, 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 in the light from st sun-like stars. Okay? And you, when you count the stars in these times, there are just a few hundred stars, right? So it's almost all dark matter. So it's the ideal place to look for dark matter. Okay, so we have the Fermi telescope, gamma ray telescope. Um, it's been up there for, for a decade now, and it's monitoring for gamma rays. Um, in space. Um, what does it find? Well, nothing so far. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the bottom line. Uh, it's looked in the most promising places and uh, there are hints, you know, uh, but again, the argument is fine, we haven't seen it with Fermi, let's, let's build a bigger and better telescope. Uh, you know, so that's, that's... Okay, so here's another place that we look at, which is the centre of the Milky Way, because in the centre of the Milky Way, we again, we're pretty sure from the theory, from the simulations, the dark matter has collected there. It's a big cloud of dark matter in the centre, so that might be a good place to look. And there's a recent um, satellite called Gaia, which produced this amazing picture of, um, of the Milky Way, um, and there are a billion and a half stars in this picture. So that's a, you know, that's a significant fraction of the Milky Way galaxy, and uh, this is, is the center. You see lot, lots of, um, of dust clouds and things. But in this central region, um, we believe the dark matter has accumulated there. And may, maybe its effects will, we would hope, perturb the stars slightly. That we haven't seen yet, and that may come. But we can look there for the gamma rays. We point the gamma ray telescope there. And so, indeed, when you point the gamma ray telescope there, th th this band is just a mask to guide your, guide your eye where there's other extraneous stuff, but behind the mask, in the centre of the galaxy, when you take out all known sources, there's a glow. There's an excess glow of gamma rays. So for a while, um, people got very excited by this, and this is exactly what you might expect. Um, the shape is more or less spherical is about right. The strength of the gamma rays more or less fitted what people expected um, from the, this argument about, um, you know, they're interacting not too strongly, not too weakly, etc. So it all looked good. And then, um, you know, more and more data came in, and then finally the, this gamma ray telescope decided that indeed there were a number of maybe hundreds of very weak sources there. Probably stars, star-like sources, but gamma ray stars. Um, we, we think they might be something like pulsars or X-ray binaries or some sort of slightly weird star, but in any case, it, they, it doesn't look like dark matter, which should be more, more diffuse. So the jury is sort of out. I mean, maybe the dark matter some it could masquerade as more point-like clumps. We don't know. But um, anyway, the, it's sort of negative. Okay, so let me take you now to the most exotic place for an experiment. So we've talked about deep underground um, in space, um, I now want to take you deep under the South Pole. Okay, why in the ice? 
because the ice is incredibly transparent if you go deep enough. And that's another good place to look for flashes of light from dark matter particles that might do something. Here the story is a bit more complicated because the idea is, um, it's more convoluted you might say. The idea is our sun is a collector, it's a giant collector of dark matter, right? The dark matter particles do enter the sun and some will collect in the middle. And in the middle, some of them will again collide with each other and they will produce neutrinos, these very penetrating particles, essentially pure energy and little else, little mass, but can penetrate more as anything. But some of those neutrinos will then hit the Earth. And in the Earth, um, in the Antarctic ice, they will make particles called muons, which can give you flashes of light, okay, so elementary particles by their interactions, because there's so much mass in the Earth for them to interact with. So it's a weird experiment, um, but here we are. Um, you have to now drill kilometers deep in the ice, which is not easy, so you use um, steam. These are steam-powered drills, okay? And so you, and they, and they drill deep in the ice, and they lower strings of phototube detectors. And just to give you some feeling for the scale, this is the surface at the South Pole, and this is the scale of the Eiffel Tower, okay? So it's an amazing experiment, and they have now hundreds of these um, strings of phototubes looking for light flashes coming from the direction um, of the sun, basically, because that's where these events come from before they hit the ice. And then, so you wait for your, when the sun is below the Earth, and then that, that's your best chance of looking um, uh, for these signals. And this is the guy who leads that experiment, Francis Helton. And again, um, it's all very exciting, but so far um, they've found nothing. So my last example of, of a similar uh, approach is, um, this is in Japan. Okay, so again in a deep mine where they're going to use a vast amount of purified water as your target. Again, for neutrinos from the sun. Okay, produced by dark matter. And um, so they're on the way to filling up this deserted mine um, with pure, highly ultra-purified water and um, many thousands of phototubes looking for these, um, and turn the lights off, and then you, know, you, you look for these rare flashes. Um, so, so far, they're up to about, um, I think it's uh, 50,000 tons or so, but they're, up, they're scaling this up, and so in, in less than eight, in eight years, um, they will have a billion litres of ultra-purified water, and here are the engineers checking the phototubes um, and doing this experiment. Again, that's for the future. It's just to give you some feeling for where we're going in this field. Okay, so let me try to... to, to um, to put things together, to summarise for you. So we haven't found the dark matter yet, okay? But we're convinced it's there. Um, so it's clear that we're running to the limits of what we can do with our current hypotheses. We're reaching this barrier where, you know, you can just build things so big and then you run into either some natural barrier or maybe you run out of money. I mean, no, no one is going to, you know, fund more than, say, the cost of one nuclear submarine for the cost of one science experiment or, or some equivalent like that. There's some natural number that you could never, you could never get beyond. And I should say we're almost at that, that, that point in comparing costs, by the way. So the dark matter is everywhere. Um, and um, it's true for the dark energy as well. Um, uh, for the dark matter, we would like to ideally have new ideas. You know, may maybe our lack of success is because we're just looking in the wrong place. You know, there's this famous, uh, it's a little bit like, you know, you, you, you go for a walk um, 
at, at night, um, you lose your car keys, and you go back to look for them, and you look under the lamppost, right? It's the only place you can see, right? But they could be anywhere. And so the same philosophy, it's a bit disconcerting. It's true for dark matter. We've only been looking so far in a small part of the possible space where the dark matter could be hidden. So we need to expand our ideas, expand our experiments. So th this is one very important step for the future. And of course, there's a certain element of luck involved as well. But if you cover enough of your space of possibilities, then, then you know, there's a good chance that will aid you in finding something. And um, as for dark energy, you know, it's not quite the same thing. Um, we, we do infer directly the acceleration of the universe. We interpret that as being dark energy. But ideally, we'd like to understand better, um, much better, where it came from to get over this terrible problem we have in the fact that it's so incredibly weak. It's this weakest... Um, uh, force compared to this incredibly strong thing that's predicted by a simple theory at the beginning of the universe. What on earth is going on? Well, it could be if it once was strong and now is weak, it's gradually decayed with time, right? And if that were true, then when you build your big telescope and do your next deeper survey, you should see a little more dark energy back in the past. You should see some evidence that it indeed is decaying. So this acceleration should not be quite as simple as we're finding now. It should be, um, um, it should be speeding up a little more and, and, um, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe cha changing, basically, from just a constant acceleration. And that would be telling us that um, it, perhaps in the past this dark energy was stronger, right? That would be the idea, to see acceleration further back than we, than we can at the moment. If that were true, that would lend credence to the idea that it once was very big and it's just decayed away to being very small now. That would be an immense discovery if we found that. And we're looking very hard and we're building bigger and bigger surveys and new telescopes to test the idea of dark energy as you look deeper and deeper into the universe. So far, we've just gone basically back to halfway back to the Big Bang, which just means a, you know, a billion, a few billion light years. But in principle, you can look much, much deeper with bigger and better telescopes. So that's, that's, that's the future for dark energy. So at the end of the day, um, we need bigger machines um, on the ground, under the ground, in space, um, to study the dark side of the universe. Uh, so it's a great problem for the future. So thank you. Thank you.